Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGenia Internet Radio. This is Friday, February 11th, 2011. I'm not going to dwell on my rift with Eli James or our subsequent split. I'm going to roughly pick up where Eli James and I had left off with our series on the Revelation three weeks ago. I know a lot of people are disappointed that a schism has developed between Eli and I, but I want you all to know that this has nothing to do with anything personal. It has only to do with academic honesty and the fact that, as can be evidenced over the programs that Eli himself has done since January 23rd, our beliefs related to Scripture have grown much too far apart for me to continue working with him. While I enjoyed the two years I spent working with Eli, it is over, and the end of our working relationship is permanent. Now I pray that I am able to continue this Revelation series, presenting what little I can discern to the best of my ability. Since I thought that in the last program that we did, we sort of rushed through Revelation chapter 8, I had prepared a lot of notes for Revelation chapter 6 and 7, and, and I expected those to get, to get me through a 90-minute program. And Eli went through chapter 8, which I was not at all prepared for at the time, and, and was only able to make a few um, extemporaneous remarks. I will begin from there and redo chapter 8. First, let me offer a summary from the previous chapters. In Revelation chapter 6, we saw what we have interpreted as a description of the fall of Rome, which was ultimately at the hands of the Germanic tribes. This culminates in chapter 8, and it all corresponds with Daniel chapter 2. For instance, especially with Daniel 2.45, where it states that, quote, For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Once the interpretation of the revelation of Yahshua Christ is made certain, we see that the hand of Yahweh in the world is indeed upon the Aryan peoples. And by that we know the identity of the true children of Yahweh. The people who we know today as Jews have always been his enemies and have never been his people. Therefore, they are only a few that they only constitute a few footnotes in the book of Revelation. Revelation two nine and three nine and some end time prophecy concerning the lake of fire. And of course the many proofs of that lie elsewhere. So in Revelation chapter six we saw the fourth horse, the pale horse or the green horse of the apocalypse, which was in which was the sickness in decay and corruption of the old Roman Empire. Then with the fifth seal, we saw the saints under the altar cry out for justice. With the sixth seal, we saw the great men of the empire wishing that they had a safe haven in which to hide from the judgment and the wrath of Yahweh which has befallen them. The stars of heaven of Revelation 6.13 must be these Germanic invaders as the children of Israel are also called in the Old Testament, the stars of heaven. For example, in Judges chapter 5, in the Song of Deborah, where she states 
of the children of Israel that they fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera, who was the leader of the Canaanites. In Revelation chapter 7, we saw in verse 1 what appears to be a momentary suspension of the destruction of the empire and the sealing of the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. And then we saw the innumerable multitude. These things are, I believe, representative, first of the righteous remnant of Yahweh, which would survive the tribulation that was to come upon the Roman Empire. And second, it is a description of the multitude of those who would be punished in this tribulation, all of them Israelites, who would wash their robes and whiten them in the blood of the Lamb. And these people in white robes must be the same people with white robes, which we saw in Revelation chapter 6 with the fifth seal, the, the witnesses under the altar crying out to Yahweh for justice, and to each of them were given white robes. Now we shall proceed with Revelation chapter 8 and the fall of Rome. Because the Christogenian New Testament, my own translation, and the King James Version have very few differences, or at least real differences, in, in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, except for names and titles, I will read these chapters from the Christogenian New Testament. Revelation 8.1 And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Just a pause. And I saw seven messengers who, seven messengers who stood before Yahweh, and they had given to them seven trumpets. And then another messenger, having a golden censer, came and stood upon the altar. And much incense had been given to him, that he may offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended from the hand of the messenger before Yahweh. And the messenger took the censer and filled it from of the fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were thunders and noises and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven messengers who having the seven trumpets prepared them in order that they may sound. Remember, we left off with the fall of Rome in Revelation chapter 6, where the stars of heaven fell to earth, and that must represent the Gothic and the Vandal and the other Germanic tribes who invaded the empire. And the first sounded the trumpet, and there came hailstones and fire mixed with blood, and it had been cast into the earth, and a third of the earth had been burnt, and a third of the trees had been burnt, and all the green grass had been burnt. The Roman Empire had been threatened by the Germanic tribes for quite some time. And even Julius Caesar, in his own description of the Gallic Wars, he complained that the Germanic tribes were forever pushing west of the Rhine. Throughout the centuries of the empire, there were empires, there, I'm sorry, there were emperors who attempted to buy off the invading Germanic tribes. These examples are numerous. Augustus, Augustus Caesar himself, offered many tribes land or bribed their chieftains in order to gain them as allies and use them as leverage against the unconquered Germans. In the 3rd century, Caracalla fought against them and bought off the Alemanni, the Alemanni Germans with a large sum. In the 4th century, Constantine bribed the Vandals with the land of Pannonia, which they inhabited for quite some time before becoming restless once again. Pannonia would be roughly equivalent to um, 
modern-day Croatia, Albania, Croatia, that area. Discussing Chapter 6 of the, and the invasions of Rome by the Goths and Vandals, I mentioned the following, and here I'll, I'll elaborate on what I mentioned there a little further. With the anarchy of the mid-third century, the city of Rome began, itself began to lose its luster. And with Constantine in the early 4th century, the capital was moved eastward. In 364 AD, the empire was divided east and west. And this represents the beginning of the dissolution of the Ten Toes, the splitting of the original provinces of the empire as it existed under the first Caesars. The eastern portion would last another thousand years. However, the west fell quickly. Later in the 4th century, the Visigoths, after defeating the Romans in a large battle, were given leave to cross into the lands of Europe. Eventually, they were mistreated by Rome and rebelled against the empire. Around 406 AD, tribes from out of the Vandals, the Alans, and the Suebi. Now, now, not all of the Vandals and the Alans and the Suebi passed into France, what we know today as modern-day France, or, or Gaul, but many of them did. Tribes from out of the, Andal, the Vandals, the Alans, and the Suebi crossed the Rhine into Gaul and began to loot and pillage the empire and take much of its lands in Gaul and Iberia, which were never recovered by Rome. The Visigoths at the same time raided Greece, and then they invaded Italy. Italy. At first, the Western Empire attempted to buy off the Goths with a large sum of gold. Rome was then sacked by the Goths under Alaric in 410 A.D. The years from 430, 433 to 453 A.D. saw the empire of the Huns under Attila and Bleda, his son, who raided the Balkans, Gaul, and Italy, threatening both Constantinople and Rome. The Vandals then sacked Rome again in 455 A.D. The Huns were bought off in the east with a large grant of land, which eventually became Hungary. But looting and bribes were eventually what were not enough for the Goths, who really wanted the fertile soil of Italy and the treasures of the empire for themselves. And so finally, in 476 AD, they took it. When the Gothic king, the Gothic chieftain Odoacer, declared himself ruler of all Italy, Rome could no longer defend herself because the empire was completely corrupt and decadent, but more importantly, as Daniel 2.43 attests, because there was little unity in the citizenry, which was now made up of people of diverse and mixed races. So the invasions of the Goths and the Vandals on land are certainly, I believe, what's, what's described in Revelations 8, verse 7. Now here's verse 8. And the second messenger sounded the trumpet. And thus a great mountain burning with fire had been cast into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of those creatures having souls of those who died in the sea. And a third of the ships had been destroyed. The vandals along with the Goths, were indeed descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. 1,200 years almost before this time. Yet, 
It had been quite a long time in their history since they had ever been sailors or since they ever had any sort of maritime tradition. Upon the invasion of Spain, the Vandals had taken the Balearic Islands off of the Spanish coast. They actually lie below Spain in the Mediterranean. They're known as um, the, the two primary islands are, are Mallorca and Minorca. And, and I'm probably destroying the pronunciation, right? From there, from the Balearic Islands, along with many of the Allens, the Vandals crossed into Africa. And Procopius states that there were no Vandals left in Europe, or at least in those parts of Europe which Procopius was acquainted with at his time, which is about 100 years after this. And, and let me explain Procopius really quick. Procopius was actually the, um, Procopius was the secretary to the great general Belisarius. He was in the field with Belisarius. He went on all of his, um, his expeditions. Belisarius was the general who actually won most of the battles for, not all of them, but most of the battles for Justinian, the Byzantine emperor. And we'll be talking about Justinian a, a little bit tonight, but at great length when we get to Revelation chapter 13. Procopius wrote his history of the wars, and he saw these wars firsthand being Belisarius's general. He was intimately acquainted with Belisarius. I'm, I'm sorry, being Belisarius's secretary, he was intimately acquainted with Belisarius and, and with all of his soldiers and with all of his actions. He knew the people very well that, that fought for Belisarius. Among the soldiers of, of the Byzantines were many, um, what were many Germans who, who were actually mercenaries for the Byzantines. So, so they were they were well acquainted with with these people, and and we'll see why that's important a little later on when we discuss the Huns. From Spain, along with many of the Allens, the Vandals crossed into Africa, and Procopius states that there were no Vandals left in Europe that he was acquainted with in his time, which was about a hundred years after the crossing. In Africa, the Vandals eventually made a treaty with Rome in 435 A.D., and divided the coastline. Yet the Vandals still did not cease from their looting and pillaging of the coasts of Africa and Sicily, of Roman Africa and Sicily. In October of 439 A.D., the Vandals under Gaiseric made a successful surprise attack on Carthage. Gaiseric had his designs on both the city and its large port. When they attacked Carthage, they took the city by surprise, and they found a large Roman fleet laying in the harbor waiting for them. This was a devastating strategic mistake on the part of the Romans to allow a, a very large supply of ships to fall into the hands of the Vandals. They didn't evacuate the harbor. The fall of Carthage to the Vandals greatly disturbed both the Western and the Eastern Empire, as there was such a large number of ships and a great shipyard in Carthage that it created a fleet for the Vandals, which, which was as great as the navies of the Eastern and Roman, Western Roman Empires put together. That the Romans allowed for so many ships to be left in Carthage's port 
while the Vandals were so close by, must be one of the greatest errors in Roman history. The very next spring, 440 AD, a vast fleet manned by Vandals and their allies, the Goths, the Alans, some Romanized Libyans, and even some Moors, set out from Carthage for Sicily, which at the time was the principal supplier of oil and grain to Italy since the loss of North Africa. All the coastal towns of Sicily were looted, and Palermo was besieged. Ships heavily laden with plunder returned to Carthage to the, the chieftain Gaiseric, the king Gaiseric. The powerful eastern imperial fleet responded by sailing into Sicilian waters in 441 AD, taking the Vandals by surprise. This was under the command of a, of a Romanized Goth named Ariobindus. But a major invasion of the Balkans by the Huns and the threat of a Persian attack on Byzantine forced Ariobindus to take his fleet back home and not to fight with the Vandals. After this, Gaiseric allowed his fleets to continue plundering throughout the western Mediterranean Sea. The Vandals then plundered Rome itself in 455 AD, and for several decades, uh, actually for many decades, that they terrorized the Mediterranean. The Western Emperor, Majorian, was the last to try to hold on to the old Roman Empire against the invading barbarians. Gibbon, the, the chronicler of the fall of Rome, Gibbon said of Marjorian that he presents the welcome discovery of a great and heroic character, such as sometimes arise in a degenerate age to vindicate the honor of the human species. In other words, Marjorian was a noble emperor. Marjorian planned a naval campaign against the Vandals to reconquer northern Africa in 461, but word of the preparations got out to the Vandals who took the Roman fleet by surprise and destroyed it. A second naval expedition against the Vandals sent by emperors Leo I and Anthemius were also defeated, was also defeated in 468 AD. So we see that the Vandals and their operations on the Mediterranean Sea surely fit the description in Revelations chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. Let me read from Revelations 8.10. And the third messenger sounded the trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, burning as a lamp. And it fell upon a third of the rivers, and upon a third, and, and upon the springs of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters came to be Wormwood, and many of the men died from the waters because they had been made bitter. Wormwood is a plant that's known for its bitterness. There's nothing else that's truly special about the name. Bertrand Compare, in his own Revelation sermons, which Clifton Emmerheiser had um, had transcribed and edited and, and added notes to and added a, a, a lot of my own notes to it one time, they're on Clifton's site. Bertrand Compare had identified this star with Attila the Hun. That is based on the idea that somehow the Huns were not white. And that is wrong on both counts. 
The Huns were indeed white, and this is not referencing Attila. When Clifton Emmerheiser had put his transcriptions together and, and added my notes to them, I disputed the identification of this passage with Attila, and, and I wasn't sure of it, and, and I expressed not my uncertainty. However, now I can refute that interpretation much more effectively. First, we are at a time which is clear from these prophecies that follows the, the Vandals and, and the Goths and their attacks and, and destruction of the Roman Empire, and Attila actually preceded them in his raids on Rome. And, and nothing else fits the, the last four verses as well or, or at all aside from the attacks of the Goths and the Vandals. So, so that's the the, the, um, the first fault I find with the interpreting the star as Attila the Hun. But more than that, the Huns had already come to relative peace with the Eastern Empire by this time, and they were no longer a threat to the West when the Vandals had their maritime escapades. More importantly, Procopius, the Byzantine historian, who knew the Huns firsthand, he had served under Belisarius while Belisarius had Huns as mercenaries in the Byzantine army, and when he wrote about them, he wrote about them as an eyewitness. Procopius describes the Huns as tall and fair. Procopius also equates the Massagetae, and the Kimeroi, the ancient Kimerians, who we know to be among the Germans and the British today, he equates them to the Huns on several occasions in his history. Therefore, he fully esteems the Huns to be of Germanic stock. Okay? Now, the depictions of Attila the Hun as a short Asiatic runt come from Jordanes. Jordanus is, and, and I have his history of the Goths on Christogenia. It's valuable in some ways. But Jordanus, the Gothic historian, wrote in the 7th century, a hundred years after Procopius. And, and his main source was another Gothic propagandist named Cassiodorus, whose work has hardly survived. Only portions of Cassiodorus' work have survived to us. Cassiodorus was a Roman senator, a Roman by race, under Gothic rule in Italy. And he wrote his history in a manner which was very, very flattering to the Goths. He had a political axe to grind, or, or a political ass to kiss. The Goths were once ruled over by the Huns in the 4th century under Attila, and therefore the Goths despised the Huns. And, and anything that was anti-Hun would have um, flattered the Goths. And, and so we have the writings of Cassiodorus and Jordanes, and, and they were both basically propagandists. Procopius, Procopius wrote about the Huns with no axe to grind, with, with no um, personal agenda. And, and therefore, I would trust Procopius's account of the Huns as tall, white, and German, to a, to a much greater extent. Aside from Procopius, we have, the, we, we have records of Attila in, in other places where he's mentioned 
quite often in a Germanic writing such as the Edda, the Icelandic Edda, and the Nibelungen Lied. The Nibelungen Lied is a um, it is a Germanic poem which dates to the fifth century. In those writings, Attila is de- depicted as quite a noble character, and in the Nibelungen Lied, he even receives the widow, the the widow Kreinhild, the widow of the famous slain Burgundian prince Siegfried, as his wife. So, so I don't think that it, the Burgundians and and the the authors of the of the Edda had no reason to describe to despise Attila, and and really had no negative negativity negative things to write about him. So, so I would believe um, Procopius's description of Attila and his Huns as tall, white, fair Germans, and dismiss the propaganda of Cassiodorus and Jordanus. This this passage, which I'm going to repeat, cannot describe Attila the Hun. And the third messenger sounded the trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, burning as a lamp, and it fell upon a third of the rivers and upon a third of the springs of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters came to be wormwood, and many of the men died from the waters because they had been made bitter. It can be told from Daniel chapter 7 that upon dissolution of the toes, from one of them would arise ten horns. Then an eleventh horn, which would subdue three kings. This describes Justinian. And I also believe that this passage here in the Revelation describes Justinian. During the reign of Justinian, and, and mostly under this general Belisarius, we see that the Vandal king Gelimer was defeated at Carthage. The Gothic kings Witigis and Totila were both defeated in Italy. During the wars of this period, where the Byzantines were trying to recover Italy and Africa for the Eastern Empire, during the wars of this period, we see that much of, that, that much of Italy and Sicily were laid bare. The Vandal Kingdom of North Africa was wasted, and many of the Vandal soldiers were forcibly relocated to the east in service of the conquering Byzantines. The city of Rome was practically deserted for an extended period of time. I think I remember Procopius describing it in a manner that depicted perhaps a few dozen people occupying all of Rome. This, it can be ascertained, is the wounding of the head in another vision, the vision of the beast of Revelation chapter 13. The empire is dead, but the beast and the dragon which gives its power to the beast will still live to rise again, is the Roman Catholic Church. When we get to Revelation chapter 13, the correlations with Daniel 7, I will attempt to discuss at great length. This star, which fell from heaven made a third of the waters bitter because Justinian would prevail over the German peoples in Italy and in Africa and in turn would also pave the way for Catholicism to gain its foothold in Western Europe. Therefore, it is evidence that this passage in the Revelation, here in Revelation chapter 8, also refers to Justinian just as the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 does.
Now I'll move on to verse 12 in chapter 8. And the fourth messenger sounded the trumpet. And a third of the sun had been struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, that a third of them had become darkened. And the day did not shine for a third part of it. And likewise the night. This passage nails this interpretation. This is important. While it is not esteemed that the symbolic language of the Revelation should always be interpreted literally, here we do have a physical proof of the veracity of the interpretations of the Revelation which we have seen here thus far. And while the references to the sun, the moon, and the stars are not to the mere objects in heaven, but rather they are also symbols, or not only to the mere objects in heaven, but are rather they are symbols of organized government and people. There is an absolutely striking occurrence which happened in the years 536 to 537 A.D., which points to a certain and literal fulfillment of this passage. Of the very time when the great general Belisarius had defeated the Vandals and had taken Carthage for the Byzantines, Procopius writes this, and I quote, For the sun gave forth its light without brightness, like the moon during this whole year, and it seemed exceedingly like the sun in eclipse, for the beams it shed were not clear, nor such as it is accustomed to shed. And from the time when this happened, men were neither free from war, nor pestilence, nor any other thing leading to death. And it was the time when Justinian was in the tenth year of his reign. This is found in the Loeb Classical Library edition of Procopius, Book 4, Chapter 14, Section 5. By this we also know that the interpretation of these passages as having to do with the wars which destroyed the old Roman Empire, but also brought great harm to the people of God who brought that empire down, is absolutely certain. Yet the dulling of the sun during this year only represents and reflects the events as they were happening upon the earth. For the, after the passing of Rome, much of Europe also fell into the so-called Dark Ages. So here we see an eyewitness account that for an entire year, the light of the sun and the moon were dulled. I'm sure there's a natural explanation for that. Possibly um, volcanoes elsewhere in the world. I believe that's actually been been demonstrated. But Procopius was no Bible scholar. Procopius was not even really a Christian. Or at least I couldn't detect any Christianity in him or any knowledge of Christianity in his histories. So it seems to me that Procopius's witness is an honest witness. It, it can't hardly be disputed. And we have a literal fulfillment of the darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars at this exact time 
when Justinian, the star fell from heaven, turned a third of the waters bitter, and the Vandals and the Goths destroyed the Roman Empire. This interpretation, I believe, is made fully certain in those facts. Now I'll read verse 13. And I saw and heard one eagle flying in midair, saying with a great voice, Woe, 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 for those dwelling upon the earth from the rest of the sounds of the trumpets of the three messengers who are about to sound. Thus ends Revelation chapter 8. From this I hope that it is made evident that the historical, the historical view of this prophecy is the only legitimate view. The chapter that follows should make this even more evident, for it describes perfectly the Arab and Turkic invasions of the Adamic Oikumene, and here we see that three woes are announced. Chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel sounded the trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth, and to him had been given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke ascended from the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air had become darkened from the smoke of the pit. And from the smoke, locusts came out of the earth, came out into the earth, I'm sorry. And authority had been given to them like the scorpions of the earth have authority. And it had been spoken to them in order that they do not injure the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, except those men who do not have the seal of Yahweh in their foreheads. And it had been given to them that they should not kill them, but they but that they shall be tested for five months. And their torment is as the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days men shall seek death, yet they shall not find it. And they shall desire to die, yet death flees from them. Howard Rand and Bertrand Compare have both identified this passage as a depiction of the rise of Mohammedism, and the Arab conquest of the formerly white regions of Mesopotamia, the Levant, and the northern coast of Africa. I believe that they were absolutely correct. As an aside, it is also evident that Muhammad is the little horn of Daniel chapter 8. This little horn is not to be confused with the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, which we shall see when we get to Revelation chapter 13, refers to the Emperor Justinian. So it may be seen that just as Daniel in chapters 7 and 8 prophesied of Justinian and then of Muhammad, so does the Revelation in chapters 8 and 9, just not to the same length. At Daniel 8, this is what it says in part, which I believe correlates with this very passage at the beginning of Revelation chapter 9. I'll read Daniel 8, verses 9 to 11, I think. And, and I, I lost the character. And, and verses 21 to 25. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great, 
toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. Daniel is saying that this little horn is going to come forth out of one of the four parts of Alexander's empire, which it broke into. Verse 10, and it waxed great even to the host of heaven, which I interpret as meaning the children of Israel. And it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. This I read as being the conquests of Islam under this Mohammedism, the Arabs under Mohammedism. Verse 11, yeah, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And the host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the earth, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. I believe that this taking away of the daily sacrifice represents a change in religion described in Daniel's own terms, in terms Daniel would understand. In this case, a change of religion from Christianity to Mohammedism. The early, while later Muslim conquerors were a little more forgiving and and tolerant of people who did did not want to convert from Christianity, the original diktat of Islam was to convert by the sword. And convert by the sword they did. Now to skip to verse 21 of Daniel chapter 8. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king, Alexander. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation. We saw that happen in history. But not in his power, as we have seen it prophesied elsewhere in Daniel, and as surely happened, Alexander's kingdom was split into four pieces upon his death. Verse 23, and in the later time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. The Arabs of Islam were conquerors under the guise of religion and were used by Yahweh as a scourge against our race. Verse 24. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people, the people of God, the true Aryan people. That's exactly what Islam did in all of the regions it, it, it conquered. Verse 25. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. Yes, Islam is the religion of peace, as long as you're a Muslim. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. Now, Muhammad claimed to be greater than Yahshua Christ, and Muslims still make that claim today. But he shall be broken without hand, something we wait for the fulfillment of even now. Daniel 8 is definitely talking about Islam. Revelation 9 is also talking about Islam. I'll repeat 9-2. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke ascended from the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. 
And the sun and the air had become darkened from the smoke of the pit. And from the smoke, locusts came out into the earth. And authority had been given to them what the scorpions of the earth have authority. Arabia is renowned as a land of locusts. The locust locust eggs stay under the desert soil until it rains, and then they begin to hatch, and the locusts swarm. I have a website I'll post. I I just tried to put it in the chat. It didn't work for some reason. My chat is lagging. That's only typical of Takshu. I have a website. And, and, well, I'm sorry. I, I will have this link on my website when I post this program. It's the Earth Observatory with set website, which is hosted by NASA, and it actually has a lot of information on this page concerning the locusts of Arabia, and, and they watch the vegetation by satellite to know when the locusts are going to swarm. I don't know if that really helps them save their crops, but they actually do do that. This helps us identify who these people are and where they come from. Egypt and Arabia were one of the four portions of Alexander's empire, from where the Ptolemies ruled until Roman times. The the later time of their kingdom is just as well a reference to the Greek rulers in general as it is to the Ptolemies themselves, and the Greeks are still the rulers of the East and of Egypt in the Byzantine period. The scorpions of the earth, the locusts, were said to have power like the scorpions of the earth. The scorpions of the earth are a reference to the Canaanite Jews. This can be seen at Luke chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, where Yahshua Christ said, quote, I beheld the adversary, or Satan, falling as lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given to you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions, and upon all the power of the enemy, and no one shall by any means do you injustice. The serpents and scorpions were not to be taken literally in Luke chapter 10, but as metaphors for certain people, which we see are the people of the adversary, or Satan, whom Yahshua gave his apostles the power to tread upon. So here, these locusts would have power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Verse 4, And it had been spoken to them in order that they do not injure the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, except those men who do not have the seal of Yahweh upon their foreheads. And it had been given to them that they should not kill them, but that they shall be tested for five months. And their torment is as the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death, yet they shall not find it. They shall desire to die, yet death flees from them. Most of them were converted instead. That a day in prophecy can represent a year is evident in many places in Scripture. 
And here are a couple of evidences of the validity of such an interpretation. Numbers 14.34, quote, After the number of the days in which you searched out the land, even forty days, each day for a year, you shall bear your iniquities, even forty years, and you shall know my breach of promise. Ezekiel 4, verses 5 and 6, quote, For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, 390 days, so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel, and when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days, I have appointed thee each day for a year. The five-month period of locusts seems to surely represent the approximate 150-year period of Islamic conquest over the Byzantine lands. This period began around 622 A.D. when Mecca was entered by Muhammad and was eventually conquered, a process which ended in 632 A.D. Within two years of Muhammad's death, his followers began their conquests outside of Arabia, taking first Syria, Persia, and Palestine. In 652 A.D., they already began attacking Sicily. Arab, Arabs occupied parts of Sicily from 652 A.D. for an extended period. By 670, the Arabs controlled the entire Middle East, and they even began attacking Constantinople itself. From this time, they began conquering northern Africa. And by 711 A.D., they are crossing into Spain. In 726 and again in 740 A.D., they captured Syracuse on Sicily, but they never took the entire island until the 9th century. In 736, the Arabs took Georgia, which was that nation north of the Caucasus Mountains, very much like the Georgia that we see today. In 751, they even defeated Chinese forces in a battle near the Talus River in modern-day Kyrgyzstan. By 762, Baghdad was created as the capital of the Abbasid Caliphs, and Islamic conquests are virtually finished. Yet it is evident that the main period of Islamic conquest lasted just about five prophetic months or nearly 150 years. Until 1060 A.D., when the Turks began to take Anatolia from the Byzantines, the Arabs competed mostly among themselves in lands they had already occupied to some extent, such as the taking of Crete and southern Italy, portions of which some Arabs had long occupied, but those areas were taken in 820 and 827 A.D. Yet from the history of the Arab conquest, we see that they did last approximately five prophetic months, or approximately 150 years if each month is measured as 30 days. After that 150-year period, they made very little new conquest. I will read from chapter 9, verse 7. And the likeness of the locusts are like horses having been prepared for war, and upon their heads are crowns of gold, and their faces as the faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of women, 
and their teeth were as of lions, and they had breastplates as breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings as the sound of many chariot teams of horses running into battle. And they had tails and stingers like scorpions, and their power is in their tails to injure men for five months. They have over them a king, the messenger of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has a name, Destroyer. In the King James that says Apollyon. I determined to translate it. Verse 12. One woe has departed. Behold, there are yet two woes after these things. This is a poetic description of the Arab hordes. Apollyon is a Greek word which means destroyer. And this is how we should view, this is how we as Christians should view Mohammedism, Islam, to this very day as a destructive force to our Christian civilization and to our white race. Don't ever be fooled into thinking that they are nothing but destroyers. And they sure as hell won't be saved. Verse 13. And the sixth messenger sounded the trumpet. And I heard one voice from the four horns of the golden altar before Yahweh, saying to the sixth messenger, he having the trumpet, Release the four messengers who are bound by the great river Euphrates. And the four messengers had been released, who had been prepared for that hour and day and month and year, that they should kill a third of the men. And the number of the armies of the horsemen is two hundred million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and those sitting upon them having fiery red and hyacinth and yellow breastplates. And the heads of the horses as heads of lions. And from their mouths came out fire and smoke and sulfur. From these three plagues, a third of the men had been killed, from the fire and from the smoke and from the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, and their tails, like serpents, having heads, and with them they injure. Again, both Howard Rand and Bertrand Compare correctly identified the second woe as a description of the Turkic invasions of Byzantine lands. This is the release of those bound by the Euphrates, which is metaphorical and not a literal reference, so that the Turkic hordes, already converted to Mohammedism by the Arabs in the 7th and 8th centuries, can begin to cross from the east. This process of this 200 million man army crossing the Euphrates from the east began in 1055 AD when the Seljuk Turks captured Baghdad. Eventually, they came to control nearly all of the formerly Arab lands under the Ottoman Empire. But that is not our concern here. We don't care what happens to Arabs or Turks. They began to move on Christian lands around 1064 AD when they began to clash with Byzantine troops in Asia Minor. In 1067, they attacked Caesarea and then Iconium in Central Asia Minor. Although initially repulsed, within 30 years, they controlled all of what we know as Anatolia or Asia Minor. Same thing, same place. Today it's modern Turkey. 
This ushered in the period of the Crusades. But wherever the European nations were able to recapture any of these lands for Christendom, the results were only temporary. Furthermore, the Norman raids on the Balkans in southern Italy and the Norman sacking of Constantinople in 1204 weakened efforts to defend Christendom rather than helping them. By the 14th century, the Turks occupied the Balkans and occupied or subjected many of the Black Sea nations. I must say that Christian Europe owes the Serbs a debt of gratitude because the Serbs lost at Kosovo, but it was such a costly battle to the Turks that the Turks couldn't think of invading Europe again for over 200 years. That was the um, the field of birds, I think it was called in Kosovo. I might be wrong. In 1453, Constantinople, surrounded by lands already fallen to the Turks, finally also fell to them. Looking at Byzantine resources in this period compared to Turkic resources, it is amazing that the city held out as long as it did. Going back to the text of the passage being discussed here, verse 15 from the King James Version reads, in part, for an hour and a day and a month and a year, rather than that hour and day and month and year. The Greek may be read either way, yet the interpretation need not change. If we interpret this time period by the prophetic time scale of a year for a day, an hour, a day, and a month, and a year would add up to around 391 years and 15 days. The Turkic conquest of Anatolia began around 1067 A.D., and their conquest of the Eastern Roman Empire ended with the taking of Constantinople in 1453. That is a total of 393 years. Very, very close to the 391 years of this prophecy. And by the reckoning of God, I'm sure it would be more accurate. The army of 200 million men in verse 16 need only represent the number of invaders over the 400-year period. They didn't come all at once. Even more interesting, and a clear identifier of the fulfillment of this prophecy, where at verse 17 it says, And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and those sitting upon them having fiery red and hyacinth and yellow breastplates, and the heads of the horses as heads of lions. And from their mouths came out fire and smoke and sulfur. This seems to be a poetic description of the cannon that we used by the Turks at Constantinople. Constantinople was the first major city in history to have been taken with the help of cannon. It had three very massive walls surrounding the city, which withheld many, many sieges over the course of history. They couldn't stand up to cannon. Sadly, it was a Christian gunmaker, Urban of Hungary, whom the Turks hired to build these cannons. Seventy of them. In his book, Marvels of Prophecy, Howard Rand 
as a picture of one of these cannons, which sat as a war souvenir on the banks of the Thames in Britain. I have an image of one of these cannons, and when I post this podcast on Christogenia, I will post the image of the cannon with it. This particular cannon is shaped just like a lion, including its limbs, and the mouth of the lion is the mouth or muzzle of the cannon, while its tail looks like a long serpent winding up its back where the fuse was lit, just as John described. And the rest of the men, those who had not been killed by these plagues, did not even repent from the works of their hands, that they do not worship demons and idols, things of gold and things of silver, and things of copper and things of stone and things of wood, things which are able neither to see nor to hear nor to walk. And they did not repent from their murders, nor from their drugs, nor from their fornication, nor from their thefts. When the Catholic religion, which the true Christian religion, by which the true Christian religion is not meant, the true Christian religion is not Catholic, When the Catholic religion is compared to the ancient Greco-Roman paganism, we see that there's really not much difference. The Catholics paganize Christianity, as Bertrand Compare used to correctly say, by transferring the ancient gods and goddesses into false conceptions of saints, and thereby we actually worship demons, or Catholics actually worship demons, I say we because at one time I was a Catholic. I was raised a Catholic. I'm I'm sorry to to have been through that, but that's life. And by their idolatry in the making of statues representing these things. We see here the rest of the men who had not been killed by these plagues. These are people from the Catholic Church. Did not repent from the works of their hands that they do not worship demons, saints. The, the early Catholics took ideas like Mercury and, and um, Mars, the god of war, Mercury, the messenger of the gods, Diana, the goddess of the hunt, and, and a million other gods and goddesses, and they labeled them with Christian names and called them saints, basically. And, and yes, they had real people who were canonized as so-called saints, but the powers and the attributes of the pagan gods were transferred to these people who were idolized as saints. Just like Paul describes, they worshipped the creation rather than the creator. We still have this admonition today in Revelation 9.20. Things of gold and things of silver and things of copper and things of stone and things of wood, things which are not able neither to see nor to hear nor to walk. Think about that every time you go by a Catholic church. And they did not repent from their murders nor from their drugs. I know that the King James says sorceries, but the Greek word is pharmakia, and pharmakia is the use of drugs. 
That's what it is in ancient Greek. That's what it is in the common vernacular of the Greek language. It's the use or dispensation of drugs, elixirs to heal sickness. Now, there's probably a lot of good in a lot of our herbs and plants and a good diet, and, and there's probably a lot of natural remedies from things that grow out of the ground that work very well. We don't study those things enough because we have a Jewish sorcery industry controlling the medical industry. The pharmacia industry in this nation, the pharmacy industry, is evil. And in Revelation 9.21, it doesn't say sorcery. That's how 16th century Englishmen understood it. They understood taking crazy chemicals and putting them, putting them into your body to cure some disease. They understood that as sorcery. That's how we should still understand it. Nor from their fornication, nor from thefts. So we see most of our people still haven't repented of these things. We're still being punished because we still don't get it. I want to thank you all for being here tonight. I will continue this series next week with Revelation chapters 10 and 11. I would like to do two chapters a week, no matter how long it takes me. If I feel the program is going to be under an hour, I'll, I'll prepare a third chapter. Uh, I would think that going over too much in one week is probably not me. I will have this program with my notes posted on the front page of Christogenia this evening. Thank you all. And praise Yahweh. Good night.